everyone. Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews for an Evangelical Encounters the Restoration. I'm your host, uh, Stephen Peinecker, and I have a very special guest, uh, Robin Jensen of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Uh, welcome to my program. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Robin, just give you a little uh, background on Robin, uh, is a historian for the Joseph Smith Papers Project and co-edited the, the five volumes in the Revelations and Translation series, which we're going to talk about. Uh, he specializes in document and transcription analysis. He is also a member of the Church uh, History Department Editorial Board. In 2005, he received an MA degree in American History from Brigham Young University. Uh, in 2009, he earned a second MA in Library and Information Science, which is important, uh, within an archival concentration from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, earned a PhD in History at the University of Utah. And uh, he completed training at the Institute for the Editing of Historical Documents in 2007. And he is uh, frequently publishes, and uh, again, quite a... Uh, quite a background you got there, but it sounds to me like the church might have found the right person to be involved in this uh, project. So uh, props to you. Well, it's it's uh, it's like waking up Christmas morning every day when I go into the office and pull out manuscripts. So uh, if the church got something good in me, I certainly got something in, in what I do. So I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah, it, I can only imagine how much this must be so awesome to be around these documents. And then I, I saw the church newsroom report when they uh, released the edition. And of course they showed you handling the documents and they had it in that really, really cool case that they put it in. Maybe talk a little bit about just that little thing. So folks, just so you know, if you haven't seen that, um, they have like this box that's shaped like an 1830 uh, Book of Mormon. And that's what actually contains the uh, remaining pages of the original manuscript, which is about 28%, and the church has 25% of that 28% just to do the math. Just talk a little, maybe a little history about that box, because I think it's so cool. Yeah, so that's that's what's called a clamshell box. Um, you often have it in uh, uh, rare books, some manuscripts. Um, so you go to any archive, and they take good care of their material when they have the resources to, to do that. And of course, the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon is um, it's not a surprise to hear one of the most important, if not the uh, most important item in the church's uh, possession. And so they want to take good care of it. And so they created this clamshell box. And what that essentially does is it reduces the um, environmental fluctuations of a manuscript. So we store all of our manuscripts in, in obviously high security vaults. It controls the humidity, it controls the temperature, but that clamshell box offers additional protection um, from that fluctuation. I, I often tell people the worst place to store uh, rare books or, or manuscripts is either in the basement or in the attic. And the reason is in a lot of uh, environments, that's where the temperature fluctuates the most, you know, depending on the year. And so um, that clamshell box is, is important, um, but it also, um, mm -hmm. it, it also preserves the lights from getting to the manuscript. One of the worst things about manuscripts is um, light. You don't want to shine too much light on, on those manuscripts. And so, yeah, that box is, is important in, in not just how it looks, it makes it look nice, but it also uh, preserves it. Our, our, our job at the church history library is to preserve these manuscripts for future generations. Um, when all is said and done, that's what, that's what our task is to make sure that these records survive for uh, succeeding generations so that they can have access to them. They can enjoy reading them, study from them, uh, uh, that sort of thing, yeah. So part of the reason uh, 
we're having you on is because of this massive volume that I was overnighted to me by the church last week. And I just want to thank the church history department for doing that. And I want to thank you in particular. Um, we're going to get to this particular volume, but before we do that, I want us to kind of little talk a little bit about the history of um, the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Where did it, where did the idea first originate? And maybe we could just kind of talk a little bit about the history and background. So the Joseph Smith Papers is part of what's called a documentary edition. Um, we have, if you go to any academic library, you will uh, find a section of that library that has documentary editions. So you'll have the papers of George Washington, the papers of Thomas Jefferson. Um, you can find the papers of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in other words, uh, fairly significant historical figures, editors, historians have gathered together the records that they produced and published them in a series of books. Um, now, th this is a very common thing, like I said, in academic work. Um, historians um, do their work from the archive. They go to uh, research um, in the archive, but when they can, they, and if they are able, they have workarounds. And one of those is these documentary editions. And so a man by the name of Dean Jesse recognized that we could do the same for Joseph Smith as others have done for uh, George Washington and these other individuals. And so Dean started the process of collecting the documents. This happened in the 1970s. And um, he went to obviously Salt Lake City is an important place to uh, find records, but he was going throughout the country. Uh, Missouri Independence, of course, has a big collection, but then other academic uh, archives, special collections. So in California and then on the East Coast, he's doing this uh, important work of gathering all of the known uh, letters, correspondence, revelations, diaries of Joseph Smith. He starts publishing the um, papers of Joseph Smith. So not the Joseph Smith papers, but the papers of Joseph Smith. And he publishes the first volume and the second volume. And then the third volume gets um, waylaid in bureaucracy and the review process and whatnot. And that's right around the year 2000, 2001, when a man by the name of Larry H. Miller um, is introduced to the Church History Library. Now, um, Larry H. Miller, uh, for those that don't know, is uh, was, he died in 2009, but uh, he and his wife, Gail Miller, were the owners of the Utah Jazz, the NBA basketball team here in Salt Lake. He um, was, uh, he and Gail were very enthusiastic about supporting the Joseph Smith Papers. Um, so the Joseph Smith Papers launched in 2001 um, with the financial backing of Larry H. Miller. And the Joseph Smith Papers started at um, BYU. Um, Dean Jesse was on the um, board. Uh, so was several other prominent scholars, Ron Esplin and Richard Bushman. And it started there at BYU and that's where I got my start. Um, I was then a master's student um, and I was looking for a job, of course, um, going to college is never cheap. Um, and so instead of being a janitor where I had to wake up at 3.30 a.m., I found a job as a research assistant. Um, and that was a, a no-brainer decision for me. So I started working as a research assistant for the Joseph Smith Papers. And then in around 2005, they moved the whole operations up to the Church History Library, um, or rather the Church History Department in Salt Lake City. And at that time, they brought me up as a full-time uh, volume editor. And I started work on um, several of the volumes. And then I um, 
still not sure how it happened, but I got a break and I started work on the first volume of the Revelations and Translation series, which was the Revelation manuscript books. Um, and uh, I'm probably getting more into this question than you want, but uh, this is turning into kind of my own story. But uh, so I, I started um, as a volume editor, co-volume editor with uh, many other different scholars for the um, what would become each volume of the Revelations and Translation series. And we've now published um, five of those volumes. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And folks, I just want to recommend that I believe it's still on there. BYU TV has a series of uh, uh, kind of documentaries and interviews that they did regarding the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And you can actually access the uh, interview with Larry H. Miller, which I was able to watch about five, six years ago. Um, so if you want to hear a little bit more about his story, it's an interesting one. It really struck me. I, I, I still remember the, very, the interview very clearly and was struck about how he got involved in this whole process. It wasn't something he intended on doing, but it just he felt led, led to do it. And I thought it was just an interesting uh, story. So, uh, so the Joseph Smith Papers Project is basically what is ultimately you want to just basically anything that was associated with the Prophet Joseph. Um, tell me the the process of what makes you determine what goes into this into the volumes and what doesn't go in. Uh, that, that's an actually really important question because sometimes um, I get an email saying, "Hey, you forgot to include this document in the Joseph Smith Papers," and I look at it and I realize that doesn't fit our criteria. So we have a selection criteria of what belongs in the Joseph Smith papers. And the shorthand is anything authored authored by Joseph Smith or anything owned by Joseph Smith. Um, now that's a very simplified process and the devil's always in the details, right? But um, essentially what that means is anything that Joseph Smith wrote or had written um, under his direct um, instruction, we will include that. So Obviously, if he's writing a letter to his wife, Emma, in his own handwriting, and he signs it and then ha mails it, that clearly is, uh, is a Joseph Smith uh, paper. But if he tells his clerk, W.W. W. Phelps, to write something for the newspaper, um, and then Joseph Smith reviews it and gives some comments, but it still goes under Joseph Smith's name, we also include that. So that kind of runs the gamut of what is included under that authorship um, criteria. But if there is, for instance, uh, a letter by Oliver Cowdery saying, um, hey, there's this interesting man by the name of Joseph Smith, and I'm making up a rhetorical or a, a hypothetical example, we would not include that because that's a letter by Ho Oliver Cowdery and not by Joseph Smith. So, so um, we are uh, including anything authored by Joseph Smith, and then anything owned by Joseph Smith. So he has, um, he sets up this church and that forms kind of this bureaucratic institution and bureaucracies create records. And so anything that comes onto his desk, so to speak, um, particularly incoming correspondence, that is included in the Joseph Smith papers. So if someone writes to Joseph and asks what the price of land in Nauvoo is, for instance, we would include that because it's addressed to Joseph Smith. So, so it's essentially those two um, criteria that we include items in the Joseph Smith papers. Although, I, again, as I said, the devil's in the details. There's a lot of um, uh, meetings where we discuss kind of the intricacies of various documents that are are included um, or that are excluded, um, and that that at the end of the day, sometimes those decisions are subjective and um, it could go one way or the other. And so, yeah. But then the other thing that we have, particularly with Joseph Smith, that we don't have in, in other documentary uh, editions um, 
is the fact that Joseph Smith is producing scripture, right? And so if you ask any uh, faithful believer of Joseph Smith's mission, who wrote the Book of Mormon, they would not say that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, but he didn't author it. And so that right there kind of goes around our criteria. Um, it's not necessarily authored by Joseph Smith from the perspective of a, of a faithful believer. However, it, it is owned by Joseph Smith. It's in his collection. And we also make kind of this um, inherent understanding that Joseph Smith was a religious figure. He was uh, known for the scriptures that he produced. Um, you know, he, uh, if he had not produced the Book of Mormon and the revelations and the Doctrine and Covenants and, and whatnot, um, I don't know what, the, what history would view him as, right? Um, in other words, the reason we have a Joseph Smith papers is because of the revelations and the translations that that he produced. So uh, just give me a little overview of volumes one through four. And what was the decision? Why did you guys make the decision to do the Book of Mormon last instead of first? Yep. Uh, also another really good question. Um, the, there was a little bit of just, uh, how do we say it? It's just kind of how it happened, the order of the volumes. Um, so there wasn't a real rhyme nor reason, except in some cases. So the first volume is was actually the second volume that we published in the Joseph Smith Papers. So the Joseph Smith Papers has different series. Um, there's a journal series and a history series and a document series, a bunch of different series. But the one that I worked on is the Revelation and Translation series. So we published journals volume one, and then we published Revelations and Translation volume one. And Revelations and Translation Volume 1 was the manuscript revelation books of Joseph Smith. Now, these are two important um, ledger books, essentially, of handwritten copies of the revelations. One was known about by scholars. The other had not yet been known about. Uh, in other words, the uh, First Presidency of the LDS Church recently turned that record book over to the Joseph Smith Papers to publish. And we were pretty excited to jump at that chance. So that's probably the reason why we started with that. It was that here was this brand new revelation book that scholars hadn't known about. And it was a good opportunity to kind of, I guess, say, ta-da, here we are. This is, the, this is the kinds of things that we'll get in the Joseph Smith papers. So that was the first volume of the Re Revelation Translation Series. The second volume is the printed revelations. So that was the Book of Commandments, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, and the 1844 Doctrine and Covenants, plus some selections of the Evening and Morning Star that published some of the revelations. And so between the first and the second volumes of the Revelation and Translation, you can kind of see this transmission of the Revelation texts. The third volume of the Revelations and Translation series was the printer's manuscript to the Book of Mormon. And we actually did make a deliberate decision to go with the printer's manuscript before the original manuscript, even though the printer's manuscript was the second copy of the original or of the Book of Mormon. And that is, was the printer's manuscript presents the complete text of the Book of Mormon, whereas the original manuscript does not. And so scholars coming to the Joseph Smith papers would have access to the full text of the Book of Mormon in the printer's manuscript. And then in the annotation, it also tracks the changes between the printer's manuscript and it goes back to the original manuscript. And then it also goes forward to the 1830 Book of Mormon and the 1837 edition and the 1840 edition. And so that was our third volume. The fourth volume was the Book of Abraham and other related manuscripts. Um, that was um, 
again, that was kind of the next project that, that we worked on. Um, and then this fifth volume uh, is, of course, the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. And as we'll talk about, that's not complete. There's only 28% of that, that that is extant. And so it kind of makes sense that, that we have the full text there in the printer's manuscripts, and then scholars and other readers can consult with this fifth volume to, to get access to what, what the dictated manuscript looks like for the portions that we have extant. So uh, just for those of you who are interested, I uh, actually have Brent Ashworth on for one of our show and tell specials, and he talks about one of the fragments that he has, and actually kind of gets into the history of why uh, of the why we only have 28%. I do have a quick question for you, and this just hit me on the top of my head. Is there a ballpark estimate about how many, how much of the original manuscript Bitumen actually had? Um, and, and so maybe we have 28% now, how much of, do we think he had at the time? I guess you could say 100%, but, or, or I mean, ballpark so, it for me. Probably not 100%. So in okay. 1841, Joseph Smith placed the original manuscript in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo house. And it was only 40 years that um, Bideman, I've heard it pronounced Bideman, but I was also had a, heard it pronounced Bideman, but um, that's when Louis Bideman uh, took it from the cornerstone. And I think even then, or, or at that point in 18, uh, the early 1880s, uh, some of the manuscript had been destroyed already, um, that water damage had kind of seeped into the, or water had seeped into the cornerstone and, and damaged some of the manuscript. Now, I say that because um, for a couple of reasons. One is you can kind of see the um, gradual uh, deterioration of the manuscript as you go through the manuscript. So first Nephi, which is the top of the manuscript, um, is in pretty good condition. So it seems like that escaped relatively unscathed. But then as you go down further and further, um, there are portions of ether, for instance, which is towards the bottom of the manuscript that you only have small fragments of any of the surviving pages. And so I think that um, that bottom 10%, I don't, I don't know, but that bottom portion of the manuscript was probably already mainly destroyed. But um, we have portions of Mosiah, which Mosiah comes kind of towards the top of the manuscript. Um, we don't have any portions of Messiah that has survived. And so I think probably if I had to guess, I would say that Lewis Biedemann had portions of uh, most of Messiah, some of Messiah at least, that didn't survive kind of that scattering of the manuscript when he was handing it out piecemeal to various visitors in the 1880s. Hmm, interesting. Um, so I guess I, since we're talking about it, let's just talk about now this volume. And the beautiful thing about it is, is that you have every page, that's every piece that you have. And in some cases you have almost complete full pages. And then you have the area that is actually uh, on the paper and then what um, attached sections or verses would be in there. Just give you an example. We have, you know, like a full page and everything like that. I'm guessing that might be Nephi. And um, so I just find it so, I mean, I mean, I can only imagine the process of, first of all, like compiling all these pages. And, you know, I sat in a presentation where you gave where there's a history of these pages being photographed. Um, and then the decision was made to use the latest technology that we have. So talk a little bit about the spectral analysis aspect, and then I want to follow up about like how you're able to figure out which piece went to what verse and everything like that. Yeah, and I, um, I should 
emphasize and underscore and put in bold the fact that I, I am not the sole uh, person that put together this volume. We had a whole right. team of individuals. So I, I don't want to give the impression that I, I'm kind of the one and only person that worked on this. Um, Royal Skousen, who um, many of your listeners will be familiar with his name, he was um, for the longest time a professor at BYU. He's he's recently retired, but uh, he spent his career essentially on studying the Book of Mormon manuscript. And so he was my co-volume editor. It was the two of us. And then we also had a, a team of others that helped. But um, this, this attempt at um, photographing, understanding, preserving, and kind of collecting, collating the uh, fragments has really been a hundred years plus um, long. We the the church and those interested in kind of the Book of Mormon have have recognized that the Book of Mormon, the original manuscript, was in pieces, tattered, and so they tried to bring those pieces together. And so I'm one of many that have tried that. But the um, we, uh, as you mentioned, the the manuscript has been photographed for a number of uh, times. One in the 1950s, one in 1968 one in the 1990s, and then again in 2017, we underwent um, uh, multi-spectral photography uh, of the manuscript. So I'm not, I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, um, but as I, as I understand multi-spectral imaging, what happens is you shine different wavelengths of light onto a manuscript. Um, so either ultraviolet light or uh, infrared or any, any kind of different wavelengths, and that reflects on the paper and the ink differently. Um, and so as you take images of each of those wavelengths, uh, and you know, we ended up with probably 40 different sets of images for every single page that we have. So as you look at each of those images, the page reflects differently. It shows the ink differently. And so we are able to look to each of those options and find the most legible, find the, the best um, reflection of, of the light on the ink that we could find. And actually what we ended up doing is we kind of took a composite of that. So we traditionally, usually on the Joseph Smith papers, we're very careful in presenting any image that we present as it looks in real life. We don't want to touch anything up. We want to present accurately what the manuscript looks like. But we realized we couldn't do that with this volume because sometimes some of the pages are, um, the ink is so faded that you can't see anything in the naked eye. So if you pulled out a page of the original manuscript and looked at it, you, you could barely tell that there's any writing on it at all. And so we knew that we had to manipulate it somehow. And so we had people who knew Photoshop. I, I can barely open an image in Photoshop, but we have people that are able to kind of manipulate those photos and make the images as legible as humanly possible. And so those are the images that we presented in the text. Now, it's not, it's not like a snap of the finger and it's instantly legible completely. There's still, uh, as you look through that volume, there's still pages that are a, a little hard to read, um, but it's better than what you could see uh, if you were sitting in front of the manuscript itself. So... I just need to know, like, so you have these tiny fragments and, and it's really, you know, going through this book, it's very reminiscent of looking at old uh, pictures of the Dead Sea Scrolls, just yeah. tiny fragments. Um, so maybe talk to that, like uh, people who do this, and of course the church has been involved with the Dead Sea Project, the Dead Scrolls Project, is um, 
the ability to take a small fragment and with just the minimal information on that fragment, in, this, in some cases it might say, and it came to pass or to pass, and you're able to place where that was in the, in, in, can, you, can you explain to me how in the world you guys are able to do that? Yeah, um, and it, it's, uh, it's quite the investigation. In other words, you use all the tools available to try to place that. So for instance, this um, situation where there's a fragment with the words, and it came to pass, that's not a hypothetical. There actually is a fragment with those words on it. Um, they luckily wrote front and back on the pages. And so if you get that fragment and you turn it over, I don't actually remember what that fragment has on the back, but it does offer you an alternative text that's going to be very close to in proximity to that and it came to pass. And so if you had and it came to pass on one side and then if you turned it over and you had a name like Mosiah or Amalekiah or something, you would recognize, oh, this goes in this certain portion of the narrative rather than anywhere in the narrative. And then, of course, we also um, um, it, it is some of these fragments. It's like jigsaw puzzles. If if there's a shape that looks like um, it fits with something else, you can kind of put it together. And if the lines of texts read congruous to one another, then you know that you've placed it correctly. Um, and then um, handwriting is also a big indicator. If you have a fragment with um, uh, someone's handwriting other than Oliver Cowdery's, you know that that goes where that scribe works. Um, and then um, we also, some of the fragments were very, were so small that we weren't able to place. Uh, we were not able to place every single fragment. There's some with, um, you know, portions of a letter and you just can't, you, you can't identify where that goes. And so it, it was a painstaking process and it wasn't, uh, you know, this wasn't a year or two effort we literally had people working on this in the 1950s trying to place some of these fragments. And so it, it has been a multi-generational process to try to get this Book of Mormon manuscript back together. Um, and so the issue that we were faced with is that um, some of the leaves are stored, or some of the fragments are stored with other fragments. And so you have sometimes um, encapsulated sheets with 10 or 20 fragments, and they belong all over in the manuscript. And so what we had to do, we had to take a, a photo of that, that collection of fragments. And then we, in Photoshop, had to separate every single fragment and then literally place it where it belongs um, for the volume. And so this volume offers kind of this insight and access to the manuscript that you wouldn't get if you had the manuscript in front of you yourself. Because if, if you had the manuscript in front of you, one, you couldn't always read it. And two, you would have to spend 60 plus years in trying to place it all. So anyway, th this volume represents the, this um, multitude of efforts from many, many uh, individuals who, who have attempted and tried to make sense of, of this manuscript. So talk a little bit about now about the, the, the fragments that are in private hands. So um, you guys have about 90% or so, and then the remaining 10% uh, or so is in other people's hands. Maybe talk to me about one, how you're able to establish relationships with them uh, to get access to those documents and just kind of describe their role in, in this process as well. 
Yeah, so um, there's an estimated 28% of the text uh, that has survived, and the LDS Church has about 25% of that. Um, sorry, 25% of the text. So you said about 90%. I, I'm 90% not of the original, so, uh, what yeah, we have yeah. left. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, there are very, very likely um, somewhere in the United States, probably in Utah, probably in the Midwest, there are likely in someone's basement or attic, there's a fragment of the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon because that uh, Lewis Biedemann really did pass these out um, to visitors to Nauvoo and it really did get scattered um, throughout the country. And so this collecting of manuscripts has happened since the 1880s really where they've started to come into various repositories. Well, we, um, and by we, Royal Skousen was the one that really did a lot of this work. He tried to investigate um, all of the leads that he could find in the 1990s uh, of where original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon might have uh, ended up. And we were in connection with a, a few families, a few institutions, a few repositories that allowed access to uh, Royal Skousen, their their fragments. So the one, the one family is, um, from Ada Cheney, she was a, um, a supervisor of kind of the custodial and janitorial workforce in the Hotel Utah in Salt Lake City in the 1950s and 60s, I believe. 30s, 40s, 50s, some, somewhere around there. Franklin D. Richards in the 1880s got a whole collection, probably about 150, 150 leaves of the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon. He passed them on to his son, Charles C. Richards. And then Charles was living in the Hotel Utah, and this woman, Ada Cheney, came into the room to clean or do something. I don't know exactly what. And Charles C. Richard said, hey, would you like to see pages from the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon? And um, Ada Cheney said, yes, please show me. So he, he was showing her the leaves, and as he was putting them away, two pages fell to the floor and kind of, you know, this was kind of the state of the manuscript where... Um, things flaked off and were, were damaged, even in the handling of them. Well, Ada Cheney reached down to pick them up to give them back. And, and he said, you go ahead and keep them and treasure them within your family. And so she had really kind of coincidentally, these two pages of the original manuscript. And she then passed them on to her children and grandchildren and other, and other family members so that um, if you do kind of reverse genealogy and trace her line, you can try to track all of these pages. Well, um, Royal did a lot of that work in the 1990s, um, but he wasn't able to find everything. Um, and so about seven years ago or so, maybe five years ago, uh, another of those fragments surfaced within the family and they were able to allow or give access to us the, those uh, fragments. And so it's really kind of that story that uh, you need to reach out to individuals who uh, may or may not have uh, had uh, in their possession one of these fragments. And, and I, I'm, it might sound like hyperbole, but uh, it is possible that somewhere there is still fragments that are um, unknown. And um, if you happen to find something, just drop me a line and I'll, I'll come look at it and see if we can find another one or 2% of the Book of Mormon text. So one of the things that Brent had mentioned um, was that every few years, the church will call out 
for the, uh, them to bring their pieces and have them examined and 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 photographed and everything like that. Um, is do you think you'll be doing that in the future, or do you think you guys have what you need? Um, technology always changes. So we did this multispectral imaging, and it and it revealed a lot. But uh, I was talking to the to the man who did the multispectral imaging, and he said, "Yeah, in probably ten or fifteen years, the technology will have dramatically improved." Um, and the question is, what what do you do about that? And I, and I don't know honestly because um, while it would be nice to update our photographs and and whatnot every ten or fifteen or twenty years. That's also, you know, in the really long term, just impossible. You can't sustain that forever. And so um, Brent has been very, very gracious in sharing his um, his whole collection with us, but in particular for this volume, this this manuscript. And so uh, I, I'm sure that Brent would continue to share that. But uh, who, who knows in 50 or 100 years what will become of that manuscript and uh, whether we'll even be able to keep track of it. So So there is kind of this continuity problem uh, of any family collection and that's uh this is probably the time where i plug <laughs> archives that, that that is one of the benefits of an archive right where you can um donate something to an archive and you can uh feel rest assured that there there is kind of this continuity or, or long-term chain of custody that that you don't have to worry about with your with your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren so i kind of want to talk a little bit about the preservation process um, so in the 1950s, I believe there was a particular preservation process that was done that you guys found later was maybe not the best thing. And then maybe talk to uh, the current restoration process or, or preservation process of the documents. Yeah, so um, as we've already talked about, pulling these manuscripts out of the cornerstone, um, they were already damaged. And um, there's a number of reminiscences or people kind of viewing the manuscripts in the 19th century, or early 20th century that talk about the state of the manuscript as being kind of alarmed, um, just saying how uh, they were flaking or, or really damaged, uh, water damaged. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how many in the audience have picked up an old paperback book um, that has real acidic qualities. The paper just kind of falls apart if, if you're not careful. It flakes, flakes away. And and I think that's what was happening with the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon. It, it, it really was kind of in, in rough condition. And so in the 1950s, they took a photograph of the uh, manuscripts, but then um, it, it was in 1968 that they made the decision to conserve the manuscript. And so this was in, in the 1960s, um, there had already been a long tradition of conservation and whatnot, but there was, um, science had really kind of, um, you know, the 20th century uh, science changed every decade or so. So the 19, late 1960s, um, conservation work was um, just starting out with, with respect to um, what science can offer and teach us about the state of paper and ink and all this stuff. So in the 1960s, they went and laminated the Book of Mormon. Um, and this was done in kind of the, um, you know, the at the time, kind of the sensibilities of, of preserving and, and conserving the manuscript, but um, that treatment wasn't, come to find out, wasn't the best for it. And so this was, I say laminating, and it, it was kind of more specialized than that, but it really was essentially placing the manuscript between two pieces of, of paper um, and heating it up, pressing it together really, really um, hard, 
And that just, that wasn't the best. And so as, over the years, since 1968, the church history library had kind of been monitor, monitoring them and looking at them. And then in the early 2000s, they realized, you know what, not only was that treatment not the best for it, but leaving it that way is going to further damage the manuscript. And so we had to send the manuscript out to an, an East Coast uh, conservation lab where they could remove that lamination. And that would um, stop, halt the deteriorating quality or, or nature of that earlier conservation treatment. And so we, we were able to do that. We were able to encapsulate them in a, in a better uh, process that doesn't further damage the manuscript. Um, and, and that's how they are today. Although that, that conservation, uh, I won't say that that conservation work in the 1960s um, was a bad thing because um, who knows what would have happened to the manuscripts. Otherwise we could have lost a lot more. We could have, there, there could have been something else that happened, but that 68, 1968 um, conservation practice did introduce some damage to the, to the manuscript. And so um, it, it's if you look at any historical manuscript, you realize that there's a long history of of how that manuscript was treated, and the original manuscript is no different. Um, and I'm sure you know in the in the future um, there might be other ways to conserve or treat or or preserve the manuscript um, that we don't know today because of, of of the development and the the increased knowledge of conservators throughout the world. Well, based on what we know about the preservation process that it's in now, what is the thought of, like, if it just stayed in the present form that they're in, how long do they feel that they could keep these preserved? So they are, they're stable. Um, the, the paper is, um, as I understand it, going to, it's going to deteriorate as uh, about at the rate of other paper of the, of the time. And so you know, early 1900s paper is pretty quality, pretty high quality paper. Um, thank goodness it wasn't translated on kind of the late 19th or early 20th century paper, which was really acidic and whatnot. So it's quite possible that this, that the original manuscript can, can stay around for quite a long time. I, I'm actually not an expert. I don't know what the, what the life cycle of actual paper is, but, uh, it's not going to surprise me at all for it to be um, still in about the shape that it is in now in the next 100, 200, 300 years. So as, okay. as long as we maintain kind of that treatment. And so, you know, I talked about earlier um, that clamshell and keeping it out of the lights. And any time you handle a, 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 a manuscript, there's going to be chances of, of doing damage to it. And so uh, the best thing that we can do for it is to try to minimize the handling as much as possible. But that gets tricky with the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon because it's held as sacred, uh, as scripture for so many people that um, viewing, seeing the original manuscript is is a treat, a spiritual, um, you know, experience for a lot of people. And so how do you how do you cater to the modern uh, generation, but also keep it preserved for the future generation? This is kind of the balance that that all archivists are are struggling with. It reminds me kind of what the Catholic Church has with the Shroud of Turin. You know, they only bring it out every couple decades or whatever for public yep. viewing. It's maybe the same concept. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually um, I'm gonna have a little fun here. I had a one of my fans on Reddit actually I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you and, and this might be a royal scousen question. 
but I'm going to ask you anyhow because they asked to ask you. Um, I would love to hear Jensen talk about whether the project shed any light on the Mosiah primacy theory. Most Book of Mormon scholars believe that the Book of Mormon, as we know it, began its translation or authorship in Mosiah after the 116 pages were lost. Then the first part of the book was translated after Mormon was finished. Did any of the new information gleaned from the uh, Joseph Smith Papers Project shed any new light on the timeline or order of the translation? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, that's clearly someone who has been in the weeds of Book of Mormon scholarship. So for those that aren't, aren't familiar, there's kind of this um, narrative of translation. What was the order of the translation that Joseph Smith uh, underwent? So According to his narrative, according to other witnesses of the translation event, Joseph Smith translated a portion of the Book of Mormon text that then became lost. Uh, Martin Harris took it to family members. It was lost. That's known as the 116 pages. Um, I probably don't, I don't think it was 116 pages, but I think you've interviewed Don Bradley and mm -hmm. you've probably already gone through all of that. But uh, so anyways, that lost portion um, took us up through the narrative of Mosiah and then this this uh, lately the scholarly consensus is that the Book of Mormon translation picked up with Mosiah went to the end of the book and then he started in first Nephi and then finished the translation with the words of Mormon um, I I am very confident and the data that we've presented in the Joseph Smith papers I, I'm even more con convinced that that was the case for a very simple explanation when Royal Skousen published his transcripts in 2001 of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. He had two scribes that he could identify as unique, but he didn't know who they were. Um, we on the Joseph Smith papers were able to identify one of them as John Whitmer. Um, John Whitmer was, uh, of course, one of the Whitmer's, Whitmer uh, children. He was living there in Fayette. The translation um, started in Harmony and then concluded in Fayette. Well, John Whitmer's handwriting is only on in the portions of First Nephi. So that means First Nephi was translated in Fayette, which to me indicates that Mosiah and everything else is translated in Harmony. And then they move to Fayette and they conclude with kind of that first portion of the Book of Mormon in, in, uh, in Fayette with, with John Whitmer. Um, and so Royal wasn't able to identify that as John Whitmer. We were able to identify that handwriting as John Whitmer. And then the other handwriting we still have listed as unidentified, although I think that there's a strong case to be made that that handwriting is Christian Whitmer. But I didn't feel comfortable in conclusively identifying that as Christian Whitmer since we have so few or so little of Christian Whitmer's handwriting that has survived. So we can't really compare it to uh, any sub substantial handwriting of Christian Whitmer. So yeah, that's that's kind of getting in the weeds, but that 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 answers that question, I think. And that's what, that's what this channel does. I like to get into the weeds. Speaking of which, um, this is the latest issue of the, uh, speaking of John Whitmer, uh, Historical yeah. Association Journal, and uh, Steve Shields wrote an interesting piece on the uh, character's document and attempts at translating it. It's kind of a fascinating story. Um, the reason I bring this up to you is that one of our friends at the Community of Christ has talked about the possibility of, because this is in the hands of the community of Christ and about doing a similar spectral analysis to the character's document. Maybe talk a little bit about this document and then where you see that going. Um, that character's document has, um, 
intrigued people for a long, 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 long time. It was published, uh, 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 they, they did an engraving of that and published it in the 1840s. And so it's been around for a long time. Um, and I think one of the reasons why people are so intrigued by it is because uh, we don't have a lot of context of how that document was created. There's, there's no date on it. There's no, um, you know, here's why I'm creating this document. It just says characters and then lists a bunch of characters. Um, and so uh, the, the question is, if we turn kind of the multispectral imaging and, the, and other spectral technology to this document, could it give us more data uh, about the creation of the document. And to answer that, I, I would say with an unqualified yes, it would. Uh, we would we would get more data as far as what the document looks like. Um, we might even be able to identify um, kind of the paper type or the ink type or what what constituted, constituted all of that. But um, that type of scientific data is best in um, in the aggregate. And so, I think in order to really tease out and understand that manuscript, you'd have to compile a fairly robust database of other types of data for other early records or even mid to late records of, of early uh, Mormonism. And so one of the reasons um, I'm supportive of such a project is that I think that science and technology and, and this sort of thing can tell us a lot. But one of the, uh, but at the same time, while I'm supportive, I'm also quite hesitant because, as I mentioned, each time you pull out a document or handle a document, that it introduces the chance for um, something wrong to go uh, to go on. And so, you know, in the situation that characters document, um, you would have to take out uh, the manuscript, uh, take it away from Independence, Missouri, fly it to Salt Lake, uh, undergo testing, fly it back to Missouri, and um, uh, that's got to be a nerve-wracking uh, trip for everyone involved. And so, you know, I don't want to speak for any of the Community of Christ members or leaders, but uh, um, yeah, such a decision uh, should be taken with kind of your wide, eyes wide open, realizing the the um, the dangers, the potential dangers, but also the maybe minimal payoff. Um, and so, yeah, that, that it, it's an interesting uh, possibility. Uh, I would love to see something happen, but I also recognize that there's a lot of logistical complexities of, of making something like that actually happen. So you and I have a mutual friend, uh, Dr. Christopher Thomas. Um, he wrote this book. Uh, this was the very first, as you my fans know, this is the very first book that I reviewed. And Christopher actually had a unique uh, a Pentecost series of Book of Mormon, in case I didn't say it. Um, and he did a textual analysis of, uh, of the Book of Mormon. And one of the things in the process of his research, he was was given access uh, to be able to uh, see the uh, printer's manuscript while it was still in the community of Christ hands. And but also you helped facilitate him being able to uh, access the document in your archives. Maybe talk about that. Yeah, um, Chris is a great scholar, um, uh, good friends. Uh, we, it's always good to go to conferences and hear the papers, but also, uh, you know, get back with friends and whatnot. So Chris was in, um, in Provo uh, at BYU for a while. And I got up, a, I got a call um, from um, a friend of mine at BYU saying, hey, there's this gentleman uh, by the name of Chris Thomas. He's working on the Book of Mormon and is wondering if he can come and see the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, and and 
we um, were able to do that. We don't do that with just everyone, but we were able to do that with Chris. Um, and he was, um, maybe he won't appreciate this comparison, but uh, you know, as a little kid, um, Christmas morning for those that celebrate Christmas is just this wonderful event. It's so exciting. And then as you have your own kids, you're, you're more thrilled about seeing their reaction to Christmas than you are about Christmas itself. And that was kind of my experience with Chris. I just loved seeing him seeing the Book of Mormon. He just had this wonderful reaction to the text that that I had kind of become complacent to, which maybe I shouldn't admit to. But, uh, you know, he was just so thrilled and so excited to see this, this manuscript. And um, it was great. It was a great experience. We were able to talk about the Book of Mormon. We were able to see the, the, the documents. And, and that's what I talk about, you know, or that's what I mentioned earlier, that there really is this, um, not just a sacred um, kind of presence to this manuscript, but kind of a historical, even for those that may not believe in the divinity or the, the miraculous story behind the Book of Mormon, um, I think you have to recognize the importance of the manuscript, right? Uh, um, you have to recognize that even if if I might not believe in this text, I know that millions of people do believe in the text. And so um, that kind of offers a, a, a gravitas to the manuscript, if we want to say that. So um, it, it's it's great to to share the love of this manuscript to um, to publish this volume that we've worked on. It's it's I'm just so thrilled that people will get a chance to better access and better see the the text, and maybe we can share uh, and spread the love of of this manuscript around. So I just had to get Chris in there because he loves telling that story about how he was gained access to it and was able to see it. It's one of his highlights of his life. Yep. And I want to thank you. You know, uh, you guys made an effort to get this to me. I'm probably one of the first people east of the Mississippi to get it. And I know that's a real privilege. I posted a photograph of this yesterday on Facebook and caused quite a stir from a lot of different people from a lot of different quarters. Pretty shocked that I got my hands on that. And uh, so I. I just want to thank you so much, Robin, for uh, the church and the church his history department um, for um, making the effort to get this to me. And so thank you. It, it's our pleasure. Um, uh, the Joseph Smith papers, at the very end of the day, if no one's reading and using our volumes, then we, then we haven't done what we've set out to do. So I'm just glad that we can get it in the hands of those that will read it and appreciate it and and further the scholarship of Book of Mormon. Um, the Book of Mormon is such a fascinating text, and it's so worth uh, exploring and studying that, and I hope that this volume will will um, raise the conversation so that people can have better access to uh, to the source material, because that's what we're about on the Joseph Papers. Well, Robin, I want to thank you so much for coming out to the program. It's been my really pleasure. Appreciate it. And uh, I just want to remind my audience to, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe, uh, and to hit the notification button for when our next episode is coming out. Also, for those of you who are interested in uh, being donors, uh, I am on Patreon. Just look up Mormon Book Reviews on Patreon. Uh, website is mormonbookreviews.com. And don't forget, our podcast is now available on Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and we'll be coming to some more lately. So uh, thanks again, Robin. It was awesome you coming on today. And you all have yourself a great day.